Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We start strong with Carl Bildt. He's a former prime minister of Sweden for an extended time uh, there, minister of foreign affairs. But far more than that, he has applied his public life to the fractured continent moving from Athens up to Vilnius. His work in Kosovo, his work uh, in all of the Balkan states as well is noted. He is European Council on Foreign Relations co-chair. Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. There has to be a response less with the original assertive Belarus and far more from Moscow. What can Europe and European political leaders ask of Mr. Putin this morning? Well, I mean, you are, you're entirely right. There has, to be a, there has to be a very firm answer. This is air piracy. This is banditry. Uh, in airspace. And if this is tolerated uh, by Lukashenko, it could happen everywhere in the world. So it's a threat to global, as to the safety and security of global airspace everywhere. So firm action has to be taken. What can be done? Well, I mean, European leaders are meeting this uh, this evening in Brussels for plan for other issues, needless to say. I think they should uh, declare Belarus airspace unsafe. Uh, one should not fly through Belarus airspace because you might be subject to hijacking or God knows what this man is capable of doing. And, and then, of course, bring it up in the relevant international bodies, IKO, and probably see what can be done within that, that context. There might also be a case for wider uh, economic and financial sanctions against Belarus if he doesn't uh, follow the uh, international reaction now. Um, Russia, um, I mean, Russia will be supporting of uh, Belarus in this particular action. Right. I don't think that particular thing is nice, uh, but they will be supporting Belarus, yes. Carl, Bill, you wrote an essay for foreign affairs, I'm going to play off of it years ago, in that this mm -hmm. event will reveal Belarus, this event will reveal Russia as they treat the Baltic states. We forget these distances, 116 miles from Minsk to uh, Vilnius, it's an hour and 30 minute flight to Stockholm. Describe the closenesses here of the tension, the geography of the tension, along with what this will reveal about these two states. No, it's very true. Uh, Minsk and Vilnius are very close. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if, if you look at the statistics, Belarus is the country in all of the world where you have the highest numbers of Schengen visas uh, relationship to the population. Because Belarus people are normal Europeans. Uh, they like to go to shopping in Warsaw or in Vilnius or wherever. But they got this thug. Uh, Lukashenko, who's been there forever since the fall of the Soviet Union. And he's been able to consolidate an authoritarian regime. The economy is a sort of Soviet uh, memorial, more or less. I mean, it's dependent upon a couple of huge state-owned enterprises. The economy is miserable. Uh, all sorts of deficits. The Russians have to bail them out now and then. And, 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 and of course, he completely manipulated an election uh, last autumn. And since then, uh, he's been trying to preserve his power by very severe repression against a very decent European nation, which, as you said, is close to us. 
I mean, Minsk is much closer to Stockholm than Brussels or London is. Um, so it's not, it's not a faraway country of which we know nothing. It's nearby and it concerns us. Carl, this is the political dilemma, isn't it? How do you punish, how do you sanction the government without isolating the people? How do you do that? What kind of decisions do you make? Yeah, and the dilemma has also been another one, if you look, look, look back on the discussions over the years. If we sanction heavily the Belarus economy, there's a risk of, of course, the Russians picking up the entire thing. Uh, because Russia, Moscow, has been keen on integrating Belarus even more closely than is the case, and even taking over this particular Belarus enterprises. So that, that's been a consideration so far. In this particular case, uh, I, I, so there's a downside to different sanctions. Uh, but I think in this particular case, what is done is so outrageous that the downside of doing nothing is far greater than the downside that is there of these particular sanctions, unfortunately, but that's the case. Do you sense that Europe is united on how to respond to this? Too early to tell. I mean, this happened uh, literally hours ago. Um, and I, I think prime ministers and presidents preparing to go to Brussels are still sort of <laughs> discussing exactly what to do. But if I see what uh, primarily Lithuania, which is most directly affected, are demanding, they, they are demanding the closing of Belarus airspace for EU flights. They are demanding the closure of EU airspace for the Belarus state airline. Um, I think the Polish prime minister said something along those lines. There's a sort of fairly strong language coming out of Brussels, although no action as of yet. Um, Tony Blinken. Washington has come out and said that the decision-making bodies of the International Civil Aviation Organization must be called in. I, I, I think they're still discussing exactly what can be done. This is a rather unique situation. There is no blueprint for how you do it. Uh, but I think there is, um, or the Greek Prime Minister has to be said at somewhat greater distance to, in geography, yeah. but the flight that was hijacked was coming from Athens. The Greek Prime Minister Mitsudakis has also been very strong in his language. So something will come out of it. Carl, in the meantime, the Kremlin has said that this has not disrupted President Vladimir Putin's plan to meet with President Biden of the United States at the summit next month. What would you hope the U.S. response could be or would be to some of this? How much will the U.S., do you expect the U.S. to be working in tandem uh, with Europeans as represented by yourself? Well, I'm, I'm quite certain there will be close coordination across the Atlantic. There, there have been sort of a statement by Secretary Blinken. Uh, there was a very strong statement, by the way, coming out of Senator Mendelius, who is sort of chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, together with the chairman of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committees of the German Parliament and the UK Parliament and a couple of other parliaments. And they were calling for strong measures and they were calling for transatlantic coordination. Um, I think that will happen. I think we'll see EU and, and, and the US working together and the UK working together on this. Carl, who is the center of power when it comes to determining the response of Europe to uh, Belarus, as well as, frankly, to Russia, which uh, seems to be supporting Belarus's actions? I think it's going to be Brussels, uh, also because of the fact that sort of the, by coincidence, uh, the heads of state and government are meeting in Brussels tonight, this evening, uh, and tomorrow. So you'll have all of the decision-making power of the EU at one spot. Uh, this evening and tomorrow. So that, that I think, will um, be decisive. And, and then, obviously, talking to London, obviously talking to mm -hmm. Washington.
I, I need to go back, Prime Minister, to the linkage here of Moscow and Minsk. I mean, obviously, we're going to treat Belarus separately here. There'll be outrage and action as well. How does NATO, how does Brussels link Moscow into their actions? I think NATO will probably sort of stay on the sidelines. This is not a sort of a military issue. And uh, I don't think we would like it to become a military issue either, by, 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 by the way. Uh, but the, the role of Moscow is going to be important. I think it's important for Brussels and Washington to send a clear message to Russia that we see this as an infringement upon international rules that are of importance to Russia as well. And uh, we would expect them to... Uh, not necessarily support us. I don't think they will do that, but to stay, stay calm when action is taking against Mr. Lukashenko. Carl, we've got to leave it there. Fantastic to catch up with you, and what a morning for it. A story that is as much bizarre as it is serious. <clears throat> Very much so. Carl Bill, the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, sir. <music> Mike Darda joins us now. Mike, is that what you anticipate? I do. Um, so we're going to get a GDP revision this week, um, and we've got nominal aggregate demand running at about 10% uh, annualized rates. Uh, and the forecast as we move into Q2 is for that to continue. So that is not sustainable. It's okay for now because the economy's coming out of a deep hole. Uh, but the idea here is that the Fed is going to be behind the curve when they do start the tightening process. The intention is to wait until we're essentially fully recovered and inflation is somewhat above target before they even get going on monetary tightening. And that's quite different from what happened in the past. So the risk is that there is some overshoot of potential and that these inflationary pressures prove to be a bit more persistent maybe than some officials um, are out there making them to be. I mean, Michael Darty, you're one of the leading proponents of watching nominal GDP, the behavior of nominal GDP itself, as you say in your note, that is the real economy with the overlay of inflation on top. If and when the Fed tightens, what is affected first, inflation or the real economy? Well, Tom, asset markets uh, will be impacted first. <clears throat> so we're watching a, a few variables in addition to the behavior of nominal GDP. It's, it's a bit back, backward looking with the statistics that we get, but we can watch the inflation break-even market that's been in a very steady upward ascent. It's recently pulled back just a touch, but you know, if you look at the behavior of those inflation compensation spreads from March of last year, it's been an incredible V rebound. And we're watching the behavior of broad money growing very rapidly, uh, much more rapidly than what we saw after the 0709 uh, crash. And so, you know, those those two variables and how they start to react once the Fed gets closer to either a taper or, you know, after that down the road, rate hikes will be quite important to the nominal GDP outlook, in our opinion. Mike, in the notes that I was reading over the weekend, there's increasing skepticism, frankly, over the inflationary uh, theme that we keep hearing. And a part of it stems from efforts on the part of Chinese as well as others to crack down on commodity prices. And frankly, in China in particular, to reduce the amount of credit in the system. How does that play into your feeling, the idea that inflation is global and there are global inflation pressures to tamp down some of what we've seen that's generated these higher prices? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, China is using some blunt tools to, you know, to try to address commodity price inflation. 
China was also the first into the COVID shock, and it's been the first out. And you know, we like to watch industrial metals just as a broad proxy for global industrial demand. And they've obviously been in a, in a very steep ascent here. As long as the global economy continues to recover, and obviously we have Europe and certainly parts of Asia way behind where the U.S. and China are with the, with the virus and the recovery. But as long as there is a global upswing uh, taking shape, then that, you know, that should be helpful for the commodity price backdrop. But it, it has been exaggerated, and these markets are subject to volatility and correction. So from an investing standpoint, probably a, a bit of a dangerous place to be right now. Mike, just quickly, how useful is China's credit impulse as just a guide for the broader market? It used to tell you something about manufacturing, about metals. Does it anymore? You know, it's a great question. It, 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 you know, we watch it. We'll watch everything. I'm not sure that it's a, uh, a perfect predictor of, of what's going to happen with commodity prices. Probably more, more coincidence, if anything. Mike Dada, good to catch up. Joining us from MKM Partners, chief economist and market strategist on the latest in this market. Mona Mahajan joins us right now with Allianz. She's U.S. investment strategist. Mona, it's, it's rude that we've barely talked about the equity markets uh, today. I look at futures up 22, futures up 130. We make a joke about melt-up. Are we prepared in a boom economy for a melt-up? You know, look, we've already had a bit of a melt-up in the first half of the year, so it's hard for us to think about S&P's up 11% year-to-date for that to really annualize for another 11%. So we don't necessarily see another melt-up happening. You know, keep in mind, on a year-to-date basis, uh, value sectors like energy, financials, you know, parts of the material sector, industrials, all up 30, 20, 15% plus, so well exceeding the S&P return. Uh, where we've really seen the laggards have been that tech and consumer discretionary. Uh, and interestingly, as the inflationary pressures started to rise over the last few weeks, we've seen healthcare and staples, uh, sectors that have had pricing power, really come to the forefront as well. So, you know, I think every uh, sector has had its day in the sun. Last year, it's been tech. This year, it's been the value sectors. Uh, some of the more defensive sectors have risen in inflationary environments. So all sectors have done their part to keep this market steady this year. But as we look towards the next six to 12 months, we're really pricing in an environment where maybe growth isn't as strong, although above trend. Uh, maybe the Fed is in play and maybe there's a, a different tax regime. So I do think you have to be a little bit more selective, cautious, active uh, as we head towards the second half of the year. Just getting some headlines crossing the Bloomberg, guys, that I want to be very delicate with, very, very careful with. Comes from Lufthansa. A flight boarding has been halted in Minsk due to a terror threat. This coming from Minsk Airport comments on a Lufthansa flight. A Lufthansa flight boarding has been halted in Minsk due to a terror threat. This comes at a time, of course, where the Ryanair jet over the weekend on its way to Lithuania was grounded in Belarus under what is widely considered to be the false pretenses of a terror threat, Tom. I'm not connecting the two issues, merely pointing out the context for this headline this morning, given the news flow elsewhere. Right now, the headline is that Lufthansa's flight boarding has been halted in Minsk due to a terror threat. That coming, Tom, from the Minsk 
Airport commenting on that flight. Well, we're coming on 4 p.m. in Minsk right now. Remember, it's one time zone over, John, from continental uh, Europe. Warsaw is, I believe, within Europe. And then as you go east, off you go to another seven hours from New York. And they're going into prime time in Minsk now. This is when in the afternoon you fly out to what, 40, 50 different geographies. So we're coming right into prime time. And this is right when it now. becomes increasingly difficult and complex for airlines to operate within that country and over that airspace, Tom, because the threat of any kind of terror on an airline is something <clears throat> taken incredibly seriously by airlines the yeah, world over. I, I agree with that, John. I don't think the airlines are going to stress very hard about this. I mean, these are easy calls to make. Maybe not, as Guy Johnson mentioned, CDG to Delhi. I mean, what do you do with that? But, um, yeah, I agree. These are easy, easy decisions for the airlines. It's much more the politics of the moment that will be... Uh, important. We'll continue to follow this uh, a story uh, with us, Mona Mahajan of Allianz as well. Mona, I haven't asked this quaint question in ages. On use of cash, the use of cash has never been greater, isn't it? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think uh, cash for companies now has, has been very interesting. Of course, we're seeing certain sectors, uh, I, for example, the AT&Ts of the world, to take their cash and move it away from dividends and into acquisitions. Uh, interestingly, some companies are moving more and more into CapEx spending. What we really want to see to kind of take this economy to another, through this next like higher and really kind of continue to drive it, is more and more spending in CapEx, in R&D, uh, having more labor enter the workforce and, and support that as well. And so uh, certainly it'll be interesting for those those investors that are looking for dividends to see if those dividends actually do hold. Share buybacks had been a, a big part of use of cash as well. Um, and we're starting to see that come back as well. So certainly there's been shareholder friendly uses of cash and then corporation friendly uses of cash that really drives the economy. Um, that balance may be shifting more back towards the CapEx uh, parts of the world, uh, but we will see in the next six to 12 months if that trend holds as well. Mona, just to tie the idea of incredible cash piles and the dynamism of the U.S. economy and frankly the global recovery with this existential threat, this exogenous threat uh, coming from what happened in Belarus, the idea of how fragile are markets right now to some sort of unpredictable threat from the outside. Do you have any sense of that? I mean, the whole concept of price to perfection and people uh, expecting things to keep going on a perfect trajectory. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, keep in mind, and we talk about corrections in the market uh, and, and any given year, you know, one to three corrections in the five to 10% range are the norm. This year, we haven't yet gotten even one 5% plus correction in the S&P 500. Um, and, you know, to your point, that uh, we could be set up for at least a period of consolidation after a really nice run, especially across some of these value sectors that we noted. Um, and that could come, you know, what could spark that? Well, we don't know yet, but perhaps it is something in the political regime or in the, the geopolitical realm that we're seeing um, com coming to the forefront more and more. You know, keep in mind in this economy, we've really seen this recovery and we talk about the K-shaped recovery. There have been haves and have-nots. Uh, there has been a, a, a diversion in income inequality. And that's certainly the case across countries as well. There's some countries that have really reemerged strongly and there's cer certain economies and countries that are still struggling quite a bit. And so in that backdrop, in that environment, when there's this increasing tension between haves and have-nots, uh, there's an increasing 
percentage or probability that we do see more disruption, uh, perhaps coming from a geopolitical event, or we talked about the terror threats, or just you know people feeling a little bit more uh, disengaged, disgruntled. And so uh, certainly that's one to keep in mind, hard to handicap, of course, from a market perspective, but keep in mind, we may be due for a little bit more severe of a pullback than even what we saw over the last few weeks. Mona, got to leave it there. Thank you, as always, Absolutely. for catching up. Mona, Thanks, thank guys. you. Mona Mahajan of Allianz there. This has been a great joy for us to speak the different mayoral candidates of New York City. It is widely presumed to be a one-party city. The Democrat uh, mayoral candidates are plenteous. Diana Morales joins us right now. And Diane has a certain voice, a certain uh, approach to this is June 23rd uh, is here. Diane, what have you changed in your campaign over the last number of days? What is your new message as you go to the middle of June? Uh, I guess my new message, which isn't really particularly new at all, um, is that this campaign is actually intended to make sure that our city comes back in a way that we've never existed before, in a way that recognizes our collective interdependence, um, and in a way that makes it possible for every New Yorker to live in dignity. We haven't quite lived up to the idea of being the greatest city in the world, and, and this is our moment to seize that opportunity. We've heard this from other candidates. Frankly, we've seen polarizing candidates, and those those looking for us out of the pandemic to come together. How do you link that with the budget realities of New York City? Well, you know, I think the budget realities are that while we won't look like we did in 2019, we're still the wealthiest city in the country, if not the world. Um, and there is enough to go around. Um, and that we've seen throughout the course of the pandemic from, a, from a, a message of unity, we've seen who it was that kept the city operating. We've seen who it was that made it possible for so many of us to work comfortably from home. Um, and the reality of it is that those are the folks who are also right now the most vulnerable and have been le the least protected. Um, and it's a both and situation. We can actually, um, you know, make it possible for them to continue in their roles that, that make it possible for the rest of us to exist um, and make it possible for them to live in dignity. Which raises a question about paying for proposals that will allow people to live in dignity uh, of all mm -hmm. income spheres. And the idea here is also that New York City is already a pretty high tax region and there already mm -hmm. has been discussions of ultra high net worth individuals moving to Florida, moving to Arizona, lower tax states. What's the tipping point in your mind for how high tax rates can go before you get this exodus that becomes counterproductive to the overall revenue of the city? Um, so I guess the first pushback I'll give on that question or the framing of that question is this, this, uh, the idea of this exodus. Um, I don't think that the numbers actually bear that out to be true. Um, we've seen that in the course of the last 12, 15 months, uh, you know, Wall Street has done this great and created more millionaires and more billionaires. Um, and actually, the, the real estate market is, is on an uptick here in New York City. So I, I don't think those indicators actually support the idea of a mass exodus. Um, I also think that there's a lot that we can do with what we have. Um, when we look at the resources of the city budget, I think there's a lot of reallocation and, and reinvestment that we could be doing with the dollars that we do have before we even um, engage in a conversation about uh, generating additional resources. Um, but I do think that it's also important for us to ha have that conversation. I think it is, is, it is fair um, to ask people to pay their fair share. While, while uh, you know, we might say that our tax rates are higher than other places in the country, we also have the greatest concentration of mass wealth. So um, those two things are actually should go hand in hand. And the idea of comparing us to other cities kind of doesn't make sense, given 
uh, the inordinate wealth that we have here to begin with. Another aspect that a number of mayoral candidates have pointed to that is important to keep businesses here is uh, crime and keeping crime down. A number of people mm -hmm. have talked for no more police, having a, a task force perhaps in the subway. Mm -hmm. What's your view on the best way to bring down crime that has been taking up over the past 14 months? Sure. I mean, I think that the best way to do that is to recognize the link between the increase in crime rate and the increase in insecurity that New Yorkers have experienced throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, allowed for housing insecurity pers to persist. Food insecurity has only grown. Um, we haven't provided health care in the middle of a global pandemic. So, you know, people's individual lives have gotten increasingly uh, insecure. And I think that correlates directly to the increase in violence as people try to figure out how to survive and how to make it in the city. So I, I think that we the first thing that we need to do is to actually make sure that we're providing people with the access to the resources and supports that they need so that they can actually live safely at home. Diane Morales, thank you again, New York City mayoral at candidate. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.